manna today. Feed me with your word today, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Send your word, God. Send your anointing, God. Speak into the darkness, God. Speak into the darkness. Speak into the darkness of my world, God. Don't you love the word? Hallelujah. I said, don't you love the word? We, we say we're people of the truth and we love truth, but truth is kind of nebulous because truth is not a what, but it's a who. And he is the way, the truth. It's, it's him that we love. Amen. And so we know we love him when we love the things that he loves. Amen. And you know what he loves? He loves the church. Yes. He loved the church so much he died for it. And so how we know whether or not you love him is how you, whether or not you love the church. Amen. Let me just say this. This is going to be a little, this is going to be tight. The deepest wounds in my life were caused by people in the church. But I'm still glad I'm in the church. Amen. When God in his infinite wisdom decided he was going to build a device to get humanity to eternity. The best thing God could come up with is the church. So you can hate her. You can withdraw from her. You can isolate yourself from her. But I'm going to stay in the church. I'm going to stay with the church. Every single person that makes it to the other side and hears, wells, and hears well done is going to be somebody who stays connected to the church. So well, no matter how deeply you've been hurt, you've got to stay. No matter how wrong you've been done, you've got to stay. Yes, the Lord. I want to stay in the church. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. Well, I wanted to go a certain direction, and I can't, I just can't get liberty to go that way, so I'm going to try something else. Why don't you turn to Genesis, the 16th chapter, verse 1. Again, while you're turning, I want to tell you I love your pastor and his wife and their family. These are just, these are just some great Christian, wonderful people. Amen. These are some wonderful people, and I appreciate their kindness to me. I appreciate them trusting me, and I appreciate them loving me. My wife, my wife does not travel with me. She was diagnosed with a terminal illness about two years ago. She's a grandma, and uh, she just can't travel any longer. And so, uh, but um, anyway, that's where she at. I am married. I will talk to, about her from time to time, but she don't travel far from grandbabies. But. Anyway, I'm glad I'm here. Genesis 16, chapter, verse 1, if you'd read along with me. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an, a handmaiden, an Egyptian. Would you say it with me? An Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into my maid, that I may obtain children by her. She's going to be a surrogate mother. I'm going to take the baby, but she's going to be the surrogate mother. And Abraham hearkened unto the voice of Sarai, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her, her maid, and the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be wife. I think that term wife there is being very, very generous, because we see where he slept with her, he was intimate with her, but we don't see in Scripture where he ever loved her. When God said, cast the bondwoman and her son out, he cried for his son, but he never, he never shed one tear for Hagar. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. 
And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee, I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do as it pleaseth unto thee. And when Sarai dealt heartily with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord, would you say it with me? The angel of the Lord, founder by the fountain in the water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence cometh thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord, said, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return unto her, return unto thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hand. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, and it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, Thou God seeth me. For she said, I, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well is called Birlo. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bare Abram a son. And Abram called the son's name which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael unto Abraham. And going back one chapter, chapter 15. I referred to this this morning because I had not planned on preaching this tonight, but here we are. Genesis, the 15th chapter, verse 13. And he said, this is the Lord. And the Lord said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be estranged in the land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go into thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come thither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Lord bless you. You can be seated this evening. I want you to know that God keeps perfect books. God's books are extremely meticulous. God sees every deed that's ever done. God sees every thought and intent of every heart. God's books are extremely meticulous. God keeps track of things that we do not see and we do not understand, even things we don't put value on. But God's books are so meticulous that even these things, small things, minor things that we do not acknowledge, God still acknowledges, records, and keeps track of. God's books are so meticulous that he said, if you give a cup of water in my name, you will not, you will not lose your reward. God keeps perfect books. God, God in one place said, when you visit the fatherless and, and when you're good to those who are not clothed, when you clothe the poor, when, when you visit people who are in prison, our lives are, are so much about us. They're so much about what I want and what I need. But, but God's books are so meticulous. He keeps track of everything we do. And he divides what we've done for our motive and what we've done it. 
I know the last time you went and bought a dress for yourself, but when was the last time you clothed a lady in the church who had less clothes than you? Because God keeps perfect books. When was the last time you loaned money to somebody who couldn't pay you back? You gave money to the poor. I know that's a bad business decision, but God said when you lend money to the poor, it's as if you lent it to me and I pay back with interest. And God, God keeps perfect books. He said, when you visit people that are fatherless, when you, when you visit and you're good to the orphan, when you're good to that little boy in the church who doesn't have a daddy, God said, it's as if you did it to me and, and I keep perfect books. I want to ask you, when was the last time you went and visited somebody in prison? Oh, I'm busy. I don't have time. Well, there's all kinds of prisons. There's prisons with bars, but there's also prisons without bars. There are prisons of divorce. There are prisons of financial setbacks. There are prisons of failing health. And those people aren't easy to talk to. So what we do is from across the church, we say, hey, brother, how are you doing? And before they make eye contact, we, we run out the back door and shout over our, sh our shoulder, hey, I'll pray for you. Because it's not easy. It's not easy to talk to people who are in prison. It's not easy to talk to people whose lives are imploding. But God, God keeps perfect. God keeps perfect books. God's books are so meticulous that it says even the hair upon our very head is numbered. That doesn't mean like he has a running count. That means he knows the difference between hair and hair 1,000. And if you pluck him, he, he knows the difference. He knows what hair was removed. Just as he knows each of us and calls us by name, God's books are so meticulous. He knows the very hair upon our head. God keeps perfectly meticulous books. You know what the problem with evil people is? Is evil people don't think God's keeping record. And because sins against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to evil. Evil people don't believe they're ever going to pay for what they're doing. But if you sow it, mark it down, you're going to reap it. Press down, shaken together, and running over because God keeps perfect books. You know the problem with living righteous is sometimes we don't think God because God's payback system is so different from our system. But the Bible said, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. God keeps meticulously perfect books. Again, God's payback systems, God's monetary system is not our monetary system. And sometimes the way God pays back has no value in our world, but God always has perfect books. And when God weighs things out in people's lives, in God's book and economy, things are fair when things are said and done. There was J uh, Jacob, J um, there was, uh, there was the two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and the Bible said one was loved and the other was hated. And God 
keeps perfect books. And he said, because one is hated, I'm going to open her womb. And she that is hated will have more kids than she that was loved. Because God keeps perfect, perfect books and God pays back in ways we don't understand. The Bible said the more the Egyptians afflicted the children of God, the more they prospered in Egypt. Again, I'm here to tell you the thing you're cussing at, the thing you scream about, the thing you complain to God about, maybe the thing that's bringing prosperity into your soul and into your heart, into your life, but never ever doubt for one moment that God doesn't see and that God does not keep perfect books. God keeps, God keeps perfect books. The Bible said, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven, their angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. This little ones is not talking about children, but it's talking about people who cannot retaliate. God keeps perfect books on how you treat people who cannot retaliate. God keeps perfect books. God, you, you, you just move on with your life with a trail of destruction behind you. But God, God keeps perfect books. And in matters of injustice, God's books are extremely perfect. So don't be weary in well-doing. It matters not who's hurting. It matters not who's destroying. I want you to know God keeps, God keeps perfect books. God not only keeps track of what we do, but he keeps track of why we do it. And there are some people who only live right for the praises of men. And you've already got your reward. Because God keeps perfect books. He not only weighs what you do, but he weighs why you do it. Some only live right for the praise of their pastor. Some only live right for the praise of their mom and dad. And you've already got your reward. But I'm here to tell you there's times in your life when all you'll get is the scorn of men. But your motives are right. And there again, God keeps perfect. God keeps perfect books. God doesn't look at just what you give, but God looks at what you have left over. And God's books are perfect. There is a story in your Bible of the widow and, and of the rich man. And, and Jesus standing by the offering plate. Uh, watched as people came and put their money in. The rich man came in and sounded a trumpet. Da -da -da -da! And threw a large bag of money in and everybody, ooh, oh wow. And off to the side was a little widow woman. And, and while everybody's attention was diverted to the rich man in his fine clothes, she snuck over to the coffer and, and tried to slip her little offering in. And Jesus raised his voice and said, look! This woman's given more than everybody else today because she gave not out of her abundance. She gave out of her necessity. And God, God keeps perfect books. 
If you're where God wants you to be, it matters not how long you've been there or how silent he is. God is entailing and, and adding up and keeping a perfect record and score of where you've been. And the children of Israel were 430 years in Egypt, and God kept perfect score every time they were abused and every time they were beaten, every time they were mistreated, God kept perfect score. But I'm here to tell you, it does not take God a long time to pay people back. 430 years of injustice, 430 years of slavery was repaid in one night as the death angel passed by. And Moses turned to the leaders and said, send the women throughout the city. This is what we need to do in Pentecost. You need to put women in charge of the offering. And send the women throughout the city and let them go to all their neighbors and say, I want your gold and I want your silver and I want all your precious linen and I want all of your fine, I want everything of value in your house. And in one night, Israel bankrupt Egypt. And as they marched out of Egypt, God said, the score is settled. And I've paid back 430 years of injustice in one night. So you just keep walking with integrity. You just keep doing what God's called you to do. Because I'm here to tell you, God keeps perfect books. And it does not take God a long time All right. to set the score straight. Because God keeps perfect books. God told Abraham, I can't do what I want to do in your life because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God is a just God. And God never judges anybody until it's the perfect time. And, and there's sometimes in our lives when God can't do in our life what he wants to do in our lives. Because for him to bless me, he's got to curse somebody else. And so God lets time pass and lets their cup get full. I want you to know we're all filling a cup today. You are filling a cup today. If God would ask you to drink of your cup, God knows what you do in secret. God knows the motive of your heart. And if God would ask you to drink from your cup. Would it be a bitter cup or would it be a cup of sweetness? Because we're all filling cups. I want you to know America is filling a cup up. We're not getting by with what we're doing. We're not getting by with how we fly in the face of God. And if God, when God demands that America drinks of her cup, so finally, God said, I, I need 400 more years before I can judge the Amorites and do in your life what I want you to do. So go down into Egypt and grow and prosper and thrive. Moses' mother, the Bible said, she hid him for three months until she couldn't hide him any longer. And when she couldn't hide him any longer, she made a little ark out of bulrushes and hid him down in the river and and Moses forgot the greatest lesson his mama tried to teach him, and that is you got to hide till you can't hide any longer. We're so narcissistic as people. We, we think we know more than God, and, and you need to see me, and you need to know me. You need to know about my ministry. You need to know about my life. You know, selfies. No, you need to hide until you can't hide any longer. There are boxes of time 
You know, sometimes in life, decisions we're forced to make wouldn't be so critical if it wasn't for the box of time that is pushing us. And boxes of time exaggerate our insecurities. They play upon our fears and, and they make us fear things that we shouldn't fear. And, and they make us feel things that we shouldn't feel. But it's a box of time. It's And a box of time was pushing on Moses. It's called midlife crisis. And it's a real deal. And he was 40 years old. And the Bible said he was mighty in word and mighty in deed. He knew the scripture. He knew it had only been 390 years, but the box of time was pushing him. I've got to have my ministry. I've got to do what God's called. I'm getting old. I've got to get out of Hey, it's time. And he forgot the greatest lesson his mama tried to teach him, and that is you need to hide until you can't hide any longer. And when he walked out of Egypt... He was mighty in word, and he was mighty indeed. But by the time God was done with him in the wilderness, he stuttered and stammered to the point he told God, I, I, uh, 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 I can't lead because I can't talk. I'm here to tell you, if you won't hide until you can't hide any longer, God, your, God's plan for your life is bigger than the failures in your life, but it can take God a long time to fix what you've done in your life. You understand me? And you're not going to be the same man or woman that you walked into the problem with by the time God fixes you. So why don't you hide until you can't hide any longer? We, we talk about David, and, and we say David's daddy didn't think of calling him. I don't believe that. I, I believe his daddy was hiding him. There are young people in my home church. There are young people in this church today. I, I don't know you, but I, there are young people in this church I could walk up today and put my finger on your nose. And everybody here knows that the hand of God's on your life. From the time you were this tall, we've known that God has a... A special touch on your life, a special call on your life. And I believe David's daddy recognized the anointing of God on his life. And so he hid him in the hills. I'm, I'm going to prove this to you scripturally. I'll prove this to you scripturally. The prophet comes down and says, I've been sent to find a new king. And I want you to send your boys to pass in front of me. And from the oldest unto the youngest, minus David, the boys pass. And the preacher says, it's none of these. Is there, is there anybody else? And with a sigh and a heavy heart, I can see David's daddy saying, yeah, I've got one more. But I've been hiding him. And the preacher says, well, we're not sitting down till he comes. And in from the field running hot and sweaty comes David. And the prophet arises and anoints him with oil and said, Behold, the anointed of God. I'm going to prove to you his daddy was hiding him. Because if that was you or me, we'd send out letters and email and Facebook posts. Come hear my boy preach. My boy can sing. My boy's got it. Oh, you need to hear my boy. My boy's destined for greatness. Instead, his daddy said, Okay, that's all good. Go back to the hills and hide. Until you can't hide any longer. 
As David recounts the times of his life, you know what the sweetest times in David's life were as he recounted and retold his story? Is the days he spent in the hills hiding, singing songs and protecting sheep when nobody knew his name. I'm here to tell you, God knows how to set the stage to bring you out. If there's a call of God on your life, God knows how to bring you out. And God knows how to set the stage for people to know your name. But until then, you need to hide. Work in your local church. Wash your pastor's hands. Scrub the toilets. Be a helper. Be a servant. David's daddy put him in charge of keeping sheep and serving his brothers. You're not a king, you're a servant. Fetch cheese, get water. You're not a king, you're a servant. I know you're anointed, but we're going to hide you. Till we can't hide you any longer. Can I tell you the sweetest times in my life? It's the 43 years I hid in my pastor's church. And nobody knew my name. I was his Sunday school superintendent. I was his gopher boy. And one day, while being a servant, David hears the bellow of a giant Send me a man to fight! And the hiding's over. And everybody in Israel knows his name. And everybody in Israel knows about his anointing. Because God knows how to set the stage to bring you out. God knows what to bring about in your life to bring you out. But you've got to hide. Till you can't hide any longer. There's another box of time. It's probably one of the earliest box of times we deal with. It's called adolescence. And at a time when a, a young boy and a young girl's sexual drive is at the highest peak of its life, they're in a place where they can't do anything about it. And the box of time makes them feel things they don't want to feel and makes them think things that they don't want to think. And it, it plays on their insecurities and it, it exaggerates everything in their world. But I've got a word for you. You need to hide. Why is it we say we trust him with our soul, but we, we don't trust him with a life mate? And moms and dads, you know what we do as soon as, soon as our girl starts to grow and get shape in all the right places, we, we change her wardrobe so everybody can see the wonderful miracles that God is working in our daughter's life. No, let her hide. Let her be a little girl. Let her hide because she can't hide any longer. Let her hide in the house. My oldest daughter was, was 27 years old when she finally got married. And she went to school. And she got an education because it's a man's world, baby, and you ain't a man. So get an education. Good. Praise the Lord. And you're not getting married till you get an education. I started teaching her that when she was this tall. And, all of her friends started getting married and having kids in boxes of time, making her feel things she don't want to feel and exaggerating her responses to things. And she was, she was dating a boy in my home church, good-looking boy, good-looking boy. I mean a man's man, just a good-looking boy. He ended up going into the, 
Ranger Recon. I mean, he's, he's a man's man. He's not saved. He's, he's backslid. But he got cold with God, and he began to tell it throughout the youth group, if my daughter didn't loosen up on a few things, he was going to dump her. And Daddy heard about it. Not a good thing for Daddy to hear about. You understand me? That's not a good thing. Purity was a big deal in my world, and because it was a big deal in my world, it was a big deal in my girl's world. You understand me? Don't expect it to be a big deal in her world if it's not a big deal in your world. I put my girls, this is off my set, but I put my girls in the play. I don't trust them because I don't trust myself, and I sure don't trust a boy. My girls were never alone until the night they got married with their boyfriend, fiance, ever. They had a chaperone everywhere they went. Why? Because it's a big deal in my house. It's just a big deal in my house. This is completely off my subject. But in the Bible, in the Bible, if a man married a woman and found out she was not pure when she married her, guess where they went? They didn't go to the preacher. They went to the dad's house. And he stood the dad on the front of the house, and he said, I want you to tell me and all the people in the community why you didn't do your job as a dad. Right. Your greatest job is not bringing home a paycheck, sir. It's praying and, and watching over the welfare of your home and being somebody that your kids can talk to. Did that come out of my mouth? If you're going to wait till, till things are in trouble to start a relationship, it's too late. So I walked into my baby girl's room and I said, baby, do you love me? Oh, daddy, you know I love you. Have I always shot straight with you? Yes, daddy, you always have. Well, I'm here to tell you if I ever hear of you talking to that boy again, you can come visit me every day in prison on Father's Day. And I'm not playing. Box of time. Box of time. What are you going to do in the box of time? Abraham found himself in a box of time. It was the box of time of old age. And and he's 80 years old, and he has a promise from God. God said, I'm going to make you your seat as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. But Abraham started getting up, and he was losing his strength, and he was losing his vigor. And he wasn't the man he once was. And there's a box of time that's pushing him, exaggerating his fears and playing on his insecurities. And, and Sarah comes to him and said, hey, I, I got this great idea. Why don't, you, why don't you sleep with my maid, and uh, when she has a baby, we'll take it and, and we'll raise it like it's our baby. And Abraham said, that's a good idea. Now, I don't understand this. Uh, my wife just, you know, that ain't happening in my house. Now, I do have the wife that comes up with great ideas, and when they fail, it's my fault. I have that wife. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I don't have the other one. And Abraham said, great idea. So... Hagar, I can just see it. Hagar walks through the camp and finds, um, Sarah, I walks through the camp and finds Hagar doing whatever slave girls do and, and grabs her by the arm and behind a tidal wave of questions and fear and pleading, Mistress, it's all well. Mistress, what have I done? What's wrong? Where are we going? Sarah drags her through the camp 
and opens Abraham's tent, shoves her in. And what happened in there was not consensual. Sarai could not say yes or no. And we don't know how many times Abraham abused her until finally a seed was conceived within her womb. You ever met somebody sarcastic? Sarcasm is a weapon of people that have been deeply wounded in their spirit. Sarcasm is something that people use when they've been deeply wounded. And, and they can take anything and turn it funny. They can take anything and turn it back on the person who's speaking to them. They, they, they've got a sharp tongue. Anytime you find somebody with an extremely sharp tongue, mark it down. They're dealing with some deep pain in their life. And Hagar began to, Hagar began to develop a sharp tongue to deal with the pain in her life. And so there's a power struggle going on in Abraham's house between Sarah, Sarai and Hagar. And Sarai has all the power. So who's winning this battle? Finally, Sarai goes to Abraham and said, look, this was my idea, but it's your fault. Fix it. And Abraham said, she's your maid. Do what you want. I could care less. So Sarai begin to abuse Hagar even further. And Hagar runs away. Finally gets so bad that Hagar runs away. And she runs to a well and she's hiding there. And the angel of the Lord shows up. Anytime in scripture you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's a theophany. A theophany is a pre-incarnate form of Christ. It's, it's before Christ have a, had a body. At times in the Old Testament, God would robe himself in flesh and come down and deal and, and work with people. Whereas like Gabriel, Gabriel appeared unto Daniel in his dream and said, from the very first day you prayed, you were heard in heaven. And I was sent to get your words and I was sent to bring you a message. An angel, just an out and out angel, does not command, it does not think, it does not, it, it's just a messenger sent forth to the heirs of salvation. They bring a message to you, they take a message back to the throne. But the angel of the Lord appears and said, I have seen, and I have judged, and because you're afflicted, I'm going to make you a great nation. This is powerful here, I want you to get this. Abraham's God's man. And Sarai is God's woman. And the plan of God for all of humanity flows through that family. But that did not mean that God was on their side. God's on God's side. And so God was doing everything he could in Abraham and Sarai's life to prosper them and to save them and to cause the will of God to come to fruition in their life. But do you know the very first time in Scripture after the fall in the Garden of Eden when God no longer could walk and talk with man, the very next time that God appears in a physical form and speaks to somebody, it's to this little maid, Hagar, a woman outside the promise. And he said, I've seen and I'm going to make and I'm going to judge. And then he says something I don't like. He said, I want you to go back and I want you to submit. Uh, I'm being abused. I'm being abused. And you're telling me go back and submit? 
yeah, go back and submit. I want you to know God has worked greater miracles in my life in the abusive situations in my life than he's ever worked in my life in the times I've been on the mountaintop and everything's going fine. And you can't leave until God tells you it's time to leave. Even if you're in an abusive situation, you've got to stay until God says it's time to stay, time to go. Because if you ever leave an abusive situation, I'm going to give you a couple. There are abusive homes. There are abusive husbands. There are abusive workplaces. Can I be honest with you? There's abusive church situations. But if you ever leave an abusive situation, you're going to revisit this decision for the rest of your life. And you have to know for sure God said it was time to go. So she goes back and she submits. In the process of time, the child is born. And there's Sarah with her pretty face. Can I tell you, I don't like pretty people. I don't like pretty people. So you and I are friends, because I don't like pretty people. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah is one of the meanest, ugliest people in the Bible. But she had a beautiful face. <clears throat> she had an ugly, dirty spirit, but she had a beautiful face. And she's standing there with that beautiful smile. And the baby's born. And she scoops it up and she rushes out of the tent and begins to tell everybody about the miracle child God has just brought into her life. Let me just stop right here. Let me tell you this. Before you tell people God did it, make sure he's the author of it. Because if he's not the author of it, he will not be the finisher. If he was not the daddy, he will not finish it. At some point, he will make you stand up and publicly admit to the world, I lied. It was not God. This was not the promised child. This is what I did. This is what I wanted. This is not what God wanted. If God's not the author, God will not be the finisher. So, Hagar's left there to weep and to mourn and to heal in silence. Aren't you glad the failures in your life don't stop the promises of God in your life? Because at this point, Abraham's really messed things up. Every problem we're having in the Middle East right now is Abraham's fault. You understand me? It's Abraham's fault. Why is it Abraham's fault? I talked about this morning. It's because he couldn't take the silence. He couldn't endure the silence between when God spoke once and when he spoke again. You've got to walk in the silence. I don't care how long it's been since God spoke to you. I don't care how long you've been waiting on God. I don't care how badly you want something. But if, if, until God speaks, you've got to keep doing what he said to do. And Abraham could not take the silence. I want to ask you, how well are you walking in the silence today? Are you walking in faith? He's the author. He's the finisher. He does all things well in his time. He keeps perfect books. I know in whom I have believed in and persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I will not fail you. I will not back up. I will walk. In the silence. So God visits Abraham and Sarah, changes their name, and, and a new child is born. And in one night, 
Ishmael went from living in daddy's house to living back in Hagar's house. And to deal with the pain of his life, he started to learn the fine art of mockery from his mama. She taught him the fine art of sarcasm and mockery. And one day, Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac. And she goes to Abraham and says, throw the bondwoman and her son out. I want them gone. And Abraham is grieved because of his son. He loves his son. So he goes to God in prayer and says, what should I do? And God said, listen, hearken unto the voice of your wife. Cast the bondwoman and her son out, for the child of the flesh shall not be heir with the child of promise. Have you ever noticed this in life when people are done with you? They're like done with you. Like they'll sleep with you and be intimate with you and, and pat you on the back and tell you how awesome you are and, and how wonderful you are. But as soon as they're done with you, they're done with you. And they don't want you just gone, they want you dead. Well, maybe you haven't walked where I've walked, but I know we, we lived together. I know we were intimate together, but I don't need you anymore, so I wish you were dead. And Abraham, who was the richest man in the East, could have put Hagar and Ishmael in the nicest house in Egypt. Instead, he gave them one bottle of water and one wedge of cheese and said, you're on your own in the middle of a desert. And according to his plan, they almost died. They wandered until they couldn't wander any longer. And as any good mother was, I'm sure Hagar gave all the water and all the cheese to her boy. And finally, the stages, the early stages of dehydration have set in. And, and she puts her boy under a little bush and wanders off because she can't stand the sight of seeing her child die. And in walks, whew, in walks the angel of the Lord and opens up her eyes and says, right there, there's a fountain. Go and drink and take care of your son. The last time we see Hagar in active scriptures, Genesis, the 21st chapter, verse 21. And it says, Hagar went down into Egypt and got a son, I um, mean, got a wife for her son. And they lived a nomadic life of isolation and separation in the wilderness. Do you know the story where the Bible said God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That doesn't mean he like put something weird in there. He just hardened the tendencies that was already in Pharaoh's heart. If God would harden your heart today, what would you do? If God would just calcify the inclinations in the direction of your life, what kind of a man or a woman would you be? God just stepped in to Pharaoh's life and said, I'm going to harden your heart. I'm going to calcify the tendencies of your life. You know, the story of um, Ishmael's descendants, you know, you know, the story of Joseph. They, they sold Joseph to a bunch of Ishmaelites. It was his cousins who took him down into Egypt and sold him into slavery. Because when you've been wounded, you're justified killing and hurting anybody. 
your hands against everybody and everybody's hands against you. You can fight with anybody. You, you can destroy anybody's life and you're justified because you don't know about the pain of my life. Number of generations jumping ahead. You know the story of the Midianites. This is who Gideon was fighting. The, the Midianites, the Midianites were descendants of Hagar and Ishmael. But now we're, we're multiplied generations down the road. And, and, and the, the Midianites were known for their brutality to each other. They, they could cut anybody down. They, they were just a family that, that was built on anger and angst and destruction. And when God decided to judge him, he just hardened what was in their heart. And that verbal combative nature that they'd carried now for generations, they pulled swords out and started killing each other with a sword because it's just one step farther down the road. Once you've learned to destroy with your mouth. Hands against everybody. Everybody's hands against me. If you knew about the pain of my life. If you knew how wrong I'd been done. There was a time in King David's life when he's running from Saul. He's already been anointed to be king. And, and everybody in the kingdom that was bankrupt and, and that had ran away was a runaway slave and had bad debt and people who couldn't, you know, the really positive, wonderful, influential people of society. You know, all, the, all those people who sit around the break room and talk about how great life is and, and how wonderful their home upbringing was. Those are the people who came out around David. Don't you know those were wonderful conversations around a campfire? A bunch of men sitting around singing somebody did somebody wrong song. Runaway slaves, hands against everybody, sword against everybody, everybody's sword against them. How David and his men made their living is they would, they would ride into villages and they'd kill everybody, men, women, children, suckling. They'd leave nobody alive. It's not for what he did to Goliath. It's not for what he did to the Philistines that God judged him and said, you're a bloody man. You can't build me a kingdom. It's for what he did during that phase of his life when he's living in rebellion. And his sword's against everybody and everybody's sword's against him. And they lived, they lived in an area close to a guy named Nabal. And, and the Bible said they were like a wall to Nabal. And so David sent some of his men and said, hey, we need some food and provisions. Will you take care of us? And he said, Nabal said, who is David? Is Israel not full of runaway slaves? Who is, he's just one more runaway slave. Who am I to give anything to David? You can always tell a runaway slave because the second anytime anybody brings their story up, out comes the sword. And David said, mount up, men. By tonight, there's not going to be a man left alive in Nabal's house. By tonight, there's nobody going to be alive. My sword's against everybody. Everybody's sword's against me. I'll make him pay. And Nabal's little wife comes out and begins to plead with him and says, David, Put your sword away. Everybody in Israel knows you're going to be the next king. Everybody in Israel knows you're God's anointed. But put the sword away. Don't start killing people to defend your honor. Put the sword away. 
And that was the greatest day in David's life up to that point. Because that was the day he moved from rebellion to community. I know why there's rebellion in some of your lives. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm not just preaching. I'm talking to you. I know, I know about the abuse of your life. I know about the abusive situation. I know why you live in rebellion. I know why there's anger in your life. But you can't live in rebellion forever. I know about the pain and hurt of your life, but you can't live in rebellion forever. Oh, rebellion's not wrong. It was rebellion. When Daniel said, we're not eating of the king's meat, we're not eating of the king's bread, that was rebellion. It was rebellion when Moses' mother said, I ain't killing my baby. I don't care what the king says, I ain't killing my baby. It was rebellion when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not bowing to your idol and we're not serving your God. And if God delivers, great, but if he don't, that's fine too. You can make me go to your college, you can make me learn your garbage, but I don't have to believe it. The very first time you came to an altar and repented of your sin, every time you come to an altar and repent of your sins, it's rebellion. You're throwing off the old man. You're throwing off the old ways. You're throwing off the old thinking. But we can't live in rebellion forever. At some point, we got to move to community. And David's move to community on that day turned the, that, that band of rebels and men whose sword was against everybody and everybody's sword was against them, turned them into one of the greatest fighting armies that the world had ever seen. But you can't live in rebellion forever. Back to Abraham. What I've preached to you tonight tonight's probably one of I think the evilest deeds I've ever heard described in the Bible. I think much of what Abraham did is evil. But we know Abraham's not evil. He's listed in Hebrews the 11th chapter. He's the father of the faithful. He's the father of us all. The only way I can make peace with this in my mind, I've wrestled with this, but the only way I can make peace with this is, is somehow he was so caught up in his own life story. Somehow he was so caught up in his own dreams that he was oblivious to the damage that he did around him. Can I tell you most of the people that hurt us are not evil people? Most of the people that have deeply hurt you in your life, they're not evil. They're just self-absorbed. Just like you are. And I don't know how God excuses some things and he don't excuse others. But even Sarah is in heaven. Hebrews 11 chapter tells me Sarah is in heaven. And I've had to pray about this a bunch. And I'm at peace today that Sarah is in heaven. I, it, it took me a while. I had to pray about it. But Sarah is in heaven and I'm at peace with that. And you need to be at peace with that. Did you know there's going to be people in heaven that you don't like? You know you formed a God after your own image when it turns out God hates all the people that you hate. The ultimate form of idolatry is when you carve a God out that hates everybody that you hate. Because people aren't going to heaven based on their relationship with me. There are going to be people in heaven who do I do not like. 
and I'm at peace with that. Can I tell you the other side of that? There's going to be people in heaven who don't like moi. Dottie Rambo used to sing a song, just build my mansion next door to Jesus. And one of the verses, my mother's mansion. I don't want my mama's mansion right across the street. There's a couple of names I'd like to put right across the street. And every morning I want to walk out and say, hello, heaven. It's me. Because that'll be heaven for me. I was thinking maybe about letting the grass grow up in the front yard and put a couple old cars up on cinder blocks, too. I mean, just, you know, just so they know I'm there. Because they're not keeping me out of heaven just like I'm not keeping them out of heaven. So time marches on like it always does, and we come... We come to my very favorite verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 25, verse 1, and it says, finally Sarah died. I love that verse. <laughs> and Abraham... Abraham marries an Egyptian by the name of Ketchatur. And Ketchatur means chase. Ketchatur means beautiful. Ketchatur means integrity. And most Bible scholars and most Jewish rabbis will tell you that Ketchatur was Hagar. Because of the way she conducted her life with integrity after their split up. When, Abraham, when Sarah finally died, Abraham went back and got her. I'm not presenting it as scripture. I'll give you a couple facts here for your Bible, for you Bible researchers. Ketatur is an Egyptian. Secondly, at the time of Abraham's death, it says that Isaac and Ishmael buried their father together. So there was obviously some kind of a, a family reunion. So I won't present it to you as fact in scripture. I'm going to present it to you as history. But let me just talk to you for a few minutes about the power of walking with integrity when you don't understand and when things don't look fair and it doesn't look like God's ever noticed and it looks like unjust and unkind and unfaithful people are going unrewarded. There's a power of walking in integrity. You've got to keep walking in integrity. It matters not how long it's been because God keeps perfect books. You know why Sarah was so ugly? It's because of the ugly part of her story. Every single person that's abusive that we know, there's an ugly part of their story that we don't see. They're really not ugly. They're just, they're just tormented by an ugly side of their story. And Sarah's ugly part of her story was that in a, in a world and in a time when a woman's whole value was based upon her ability to have children, 
Sarah was barren. She could have no children. We look at her from a distance and we'd say at the age of 90, I, I mean, I wish my wife was like Sarah at the age of 90. I mean, she's beautiful, but I don't think at the age of 90, like kid, kings are going to kidnap her and take her home. <laughs> you know, like a prince is riding around on a horse, sees a 90-year-old, woo, baby, you're going home with me. And that looks wonderful from the outside, don't it? But the beautiful part of people's story that you see from a distance isn't so beautiful when you get up close. Everywhere she went, history tells us she had to disguise herself because when people saw her beauty, they couldn't control themselves. Twice we know from Scripture kings kidnapped her and put her husband's life in jeopardy. How would you like to be Abraham and wake up every day and understand if anybody sees my wife, they'll kill me? This is the ugly part of her story. That lady who sings on the platform that you wish you had her voice and her anointing, you don't know where that anointing came from. You don't know the ugly part that give, gave her that voice and gave her that anointing. You know the preacher you love to go and hear and, and you love his preaching and you, you don't know the ugly part. You don't know the ugly part of the story. We all know the ugly part of our story, but we don't understand that everybody has an ugly part to their life. And it's the ugly part of other people's lives that make them do what they do. They're not evil. It matters. If you get nothing else but this point right here, I want you to get this point. In matters of justice, mercy, and revenge, only God knows the whole story. That's why we're not allowed to touch it. I don't know how God's scales work, but only God understands judgment, mercy, and revenge. And God keeps perfect books. And keep your hand off it. Keep your hand off revenge. Keep your hand off hatred. Just keep walking with integrity. God keeps perfect books. Sister Townley, come, I'm almost done. I've already told you the ugly part of Hagar's story. We know the ugly part is she was a slave. We don't know if she was bought at a slave auction. We don't know if she was the spoiled one in battle, but she was a slave. As a young, innocent girl, she was violated. She had her innocence. She had her youth. She had her first baby taken away from her by a woman who didn't love her and didn't even value the gift that she had given her. We know her master sent her out into a wilderness to die and could care less about her. But can I tell you the beautiful part of Hagar's story? Every time she was in trouble, in walked God, not an angel, not, not Gabriel, not Michael, in walked God. What do you need, Hagar? What do you need? I've seen you. I've judged, and I'm going to make things fair. I've seen you. Hagar, you're not alone. Open your eyes. There's a well of water. In every one of our lives, there's something very, very, very ugly. But in every one of our lives, 
there's something really, really, really beautiful. And it matters not who hates me if when I pray. <laughs> in walks the Holy Ghost. The power of walking in integrity. The power of walking in the silence. <laughs> the power of just daily getting up and doing what's right and leaving things in the hands of a fair and a just God. And when Hagar's life was over and God weighed Sarah and Hagar in the scales, God said, the balance isn't paid. All things have been done fair and right because God keeps perfect books. I'm done. Would you stand tonight? Praise God. How about let's come give ourselves to the Lord, place ourselves in his hands again and Say, God, I'm going to walk integrity with you. Walk with integrity. Keep myself humbled in your hands and let you work your will. My life and let you work something beautiful. Keep working beautiful in my life. Keep working beautiful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.